Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. And welcome to our first podcast of 2020. Happy new decade. <laughs> yeah, new decade. Yeah, 2020, the year of Swift on the server. So today we're talking about a proposal that uh, has been pitched uh, or that, w- that was pitched uh, a couple weeks ago. And it is still in the review phase. Is that correct? Well, it hasn't yeah. uh, hasn't been or, a formal proposal yet, so it's still in the pitch phase. Yes, um, but it looks like this will eventually get into a formal proposal soon. So it is about uh, modify accessors. It's definitely a more complex and uh, uh, complicated feature, more advanced for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's really um, creating or exposing Swift developers to a, a paradigm that they probably haven't uh, encountered before, unless they've used other programming languages um, with with these kinds of modern features. Mm-hmm. So this is being pitched by by Ben Cohen, um, and the primary reason why. Uh, this is being pitched is really for performance reasons um, to avoid some performance pitfalls that can happen with the way that uh, Swift's value semantics and, and copy operations work, where if values are copied when they're written to, but if you're sometimes setting a value uh, in usually certain collection types, um, it'll incur a copy first and then make the mutation which could be pretty expensive if if you never actually meant to create that copy in the first place right and especially if you are modifying values in a loop then the the cost of that just explodes right and and that's you know the same thing goes for any sort of performance sensitive code is if you're doing it a lot it matters a lot more <laughs> Right, right, right. And, and that's that's where the loop comes in, um, more so than you know the the loop mechanics necessarily playing a role. Yeah. So this pitch is rare in that it's uh, proposing two new um, keywords, um, which you know the core team doesn't take lightly. You know, to add a new keyword is a pretty big deal. Um, so I think this is a pretty serious proposal. Um, just on that, you know, as opposed to something where, you know, you're just adding some convenience methods or like new APIs to the standard library, for example. Right. And the pitch is also unique in the sense that it's pitching um, functionality that has actually been shipping with mm-hmm. uh, the Swift language as of Swift 5.0, but it was using underscore prefixed keywords. And for the most part, you know, this was an implementation detail that was subject and still is subject to change uh, in the future um, and that was only really used by the Swift standard library itself to work around these performance pitfalls. Do you want to give an example of uh, some of those? Of Yeah, sure. So the, the, the problem statement really is that currently you can 
you can expose uh, usually subscripts as getters and setters. And if we take for the, as an example, something like a dictionary, and you want to say you have values that are integers that are some sort of like the count of something, right? So you might be incrementing these integers that are the values. Well, if you just try to add plus one to a value for a given dictionary key value pair, it might look like you're making an in-place mutation, but actually you're performing three separate operations. It's very far from being atomic. First, you get a copy of the value, right? So if it's currently zero, you get that out. Second operation is you'll add one to it, right? You'll perform your mutation. So get, then mutate. And then finally, you call set again to go and add it back. Um, and the same thing goes, you know, I'm using integers as an example here, but um, you could be using something like a set where you're um, inserting items or removing items into the set, or you could be doing um, something like string concatenation or string processing. Well, those can get expensive, right? Imagine you have a large string and you just want to add a character to all of the values in a dictionary that are all strings, right? Well, you're going to have to right. read that out, perform the mutation, which then causes a copy of that, even though you're not using it as the caller, you just want to mutate the, the original value, say, in that dictionary or, or in an array or, you know, a number of usually collections is, is where this is most right. commonly hit. So you have th those three operations, uh, and really, in, in practice, you as the caller don't really care what the value is. You're not reading it out. You certainly don't want to create a copy of it, which will be expensive and will happen if the type that you're mutating is copy on write. Mm -hmm. So so all that to say that this just incurs a lot of overhead for um, these cases where it might be performance sensitive. Yeah, exactly. And it's definitely unintuitive i mean when you see this explanation and you read through it it makes a lot of sense and it's easy to understand but when you're writing this type of code i think it's not necessarily top of mind uh that this is like all of this is happening under the hood so what what this proposal is is pitching really is in addition to get and set uh, closures, I suppose, that, that you can define as part of your properties. Um, you can also create or add a modify one, which instead of returning the value or overriding the value, it will yield, so it will allow the caller to modify the value in place while still leveraging um, these proper, this property syntax or even subscript syntax. Right. And so uh, backing up just a little bit, one thing that I want to clarify for listeners is that normally when you implement a computed property, you have your git and your set um, closures in there. The reason that this makes a copier, the reason that you have this performance impact with something like uh, a collection or of computed string property where you're um, perhaps you know mutating that value when you do that initial git um, that increments the reference count on the backing buffer of the string or the collection 
And so when you mutate that value and reset it, the reason the copy has to happen is because the buffer is no longer uniquely referenced. And that's why that copy happens. So this modify keyword allows you to modify that in place without this extra copy. Yeah, thanks a lot for explaining that. Um, and of course, you know, for array or collection, sure, you might have a backing buffer, but this concept applies no matter what kind of backing storage exists. Um, the point being, there's no sort of nested in-place mutation operation in Swift. You can right. You can really just read out, mutate, set back, um, which for any copy on write type that you're doing that with string, collection, um, you know, array, set, whatever, uh, that incurs the copy. Yeah, plus there's there's smaller overhead as well involved with automatic reference counting, where if you're incrementing the ref count for something to mutate it and then decrement it right afterwards, that's right. sort of wasteful when mm-hmm. you know that the uh, lifetime is going to outlive whatever mutation is happening. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of uh, extra overhead there. I didn't think about that initially. Well, it's so marginal compared to yeah. copying you know, the contents of a value that in most cases it'll be dwarfed by that, by that copy. Um, right. But, you know, in the case of like a really tight loop with um, integers that you're incrementing, well, the copy of the integer isn't necessarily all that large. It's more so the, the impact that it has on arc. Right. So what's really interesting with this concept is that um, it is a, specialization of the coroutine concept Um, and coroutines will probably be new to most of our listeners. Um, They're a little bit foreign to, to me certainly because so far we've never really been exposed to them. If you've been primarily um, an Apple developer working in objective C or C or C plus plus or Swift, they're more so a, more of a modern programming concept, um, or at least it's it's having a resurgence. And the idea, I, I find there's there's a post here um, in this pitch thread by John McCall, where he um, attempts to explain what he means or, or what the Swift team means by what's a coroutine. Jesse, do you want to take a stab at, <laughs> at explaining what John says? Uh, sure. So my understanding is that a coroutine differs from a normal function call uh, in that uh, it can be suspended and resumed uh, in different ways. I'm not sure if that is completely correct. I might be glossing over a lot of details there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry <laughs> for putting you on the spot. I guess for, yeah. <laughs> for that. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think you're spot on, right? Where um, the the concept of a coroutine is really sort of defining what the control flow uh, of a function typically is. So mm-hmm. in a normal function, the the sort of standard functions that we're used to, every function call adds a new item, a new execution to the call stack. 
and this call mm -hmm. stack grows and it shrinks and it's very linear. Um, calling a function grows the call stack, returning from a function um, shrinks the call stack. All right, right. You, so you push so and you, pop. Right, right. You call the function, it finishes execution, it gets popped off the stack, uh, returning to its callee. Um, or yeah, right. And right. and um, a function either continues or it returns, right? And and those are really the the two aspects of control flow that it can have. Well. This adding the concept of a coroutine gives uh, a little bit more flexibility to that model where um, a function can not only execute work and return, but can also suspend itself. Mm -hmm. And the way that it can do that is to go back to another execution context, i.e. another function or another, you know, another part of the code to execute something and then resume the the coroutine that was suspended with whatever result of that work happened elsewhere. So instead of just passing things down and then back up the, the call stack, um, that you can sort of go sideways as well, or temporarily go up and down that call stack. Uh, you know, it so, sort of depends what analogy you want to look at. And specifically mm -hmm. in the way that modifying yield work um, as, as they're being pitched for this proposal, is that um, a, a modify um, execution context, right? So what you would put in the body of this modify keyword for your property um, would be able to yield a single time. And that would then suspend that execution context, go back to the call site, perform whatever operation was being, um, was being requested by the caller and then return the execution context to the modify function after that yield. So this can be very helpful in terms of exposing a mutable value to the caller so that you work around these performance issues that we mentioned earlier, where instead of going linearly and having the get context return the value, having the mutation copy it and having then another set operation, this modify then yield dance can expose just the mutable value and do an in-place mutation on it and then continue the execution of the modify uh, body just as if that mutation had happened um, in the modify body itself. Right. So suppose you have a uh, like a private string property and then you expose that property via um, a computed property that's public and your getters and setters normally um, would just access that that private property and so you can keep that hidden from uh, clients of you know whatever this API is so in this case suppose you have like uh, suppose it's a string property and um, the caller says, you know, whatever this this type dot string property, and then appends something to it. Um, that's when modify would come into play and yield the value to that caller, append to this um, 
publicly exposed computed property, which internally will access the uh, private string property, but yields this value to the caller, gets modified, you append to the string, and then everything continues from there. Yeah, and it's worth worth stating that this is um, you know this isn't the entirety of the coroutine concept isn't being pitched as this modify access. So this is one specific uh, implementation of that idea that can surface as a language feature, right? And right there, I forget exactly where I read this. I think it was in this thread, um, but someone was making the distinction between language features and code routines. Like code routines on their own aren't necessarily language features. They're a concept, just like um, the, the linear call stack example that we were discussing earlier is a concept. It, it tends to manifest itself as very concrete language features. And in this case, it would be this modify yield set of keywords and, and um, control flow. Right. That was in uh, John McCall's post, uh, which we'll link to in the, the show notes, where he explains the difference between the, the concept and a, versus a feature. Right. Uh, and he also brings up a specific kind of coroutine uh, called a semi-coroutine, which is actually what um, the modify accessor is. Um, so there's a few small differences there, but... Um, I think he explains it all pretty well in this post. Right. So a semi-coroutine, as John finds it, is a coroutine that can only suspend itself to resume the last execution that had resumed it. And and that's where the keyword yield is commonly used. Um, so it's specifically, well, it, is, it is a simplification of the more generic coroutine concept mm-hmm. um, where you might be able to call in or, or, def- or, transfer execution to somewhere else entirely. And this isn't what the modify yield feature is. Um, It's strictly just um, jumping back to the uh, execution that had invoked the current context. Right. So it can yield once and then it has to end, right? Yeah. And not only can it only yield once, that's part of it, but it's it can also only yield to the execution that initiated it. Can oh, right. yield arbitrarily to some other context. Right. Right. And I think that's where um, things like async await tend to push this concept a little bit further, where mm-hmm. you can yield to arbitrarily new contexts that's interesting uh and also sounds very complicated (laughs) yeah and i think it's uh it's probably more complicated if we look at the sort of computer science theory backing this than um, specifically the the use cases where this could be applied right again the distinction between concept versus feature yeah so further in this pitch Ben Cohen starts to elaborate on a few potential um, issues here so um, that users could run into, um, which really starts diving into like why this would be a much more advanced feature. 
And actually on, on that note, taking a small step back, I think this, when you read through this pitch, I think it is a little bit intimidating, the, the full thing. But it's also important to note that I think a lot of users may not use this and you're not ever exposed to it until you actually need to be, until you want to implement something like this. Uh, which is great. And it follows the, you know, Swift's paradigm of progressive disclosure pretty well, I think. So the the first issue, or I guess just the first kind of caveat here is that uh, uh, you must have exactly one yield on every path in your implementation of um, this, this modify coroutine. And... Um, if you don't, the compiler will um, catch that because of its uh, memory access guarantees, which is nice. Um, so if you do have some sort of uh, unreachable code path, you'd have to put a fatal error there. You know, it's almost like they, they planned this. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a language is the composition of all of its parts, right? And... Um, you know, another alternative instead of putting fatal error is, you know, think thinking of your code structure in a more swifty way to perhaps use an enum to describe the the various um, execution states that you can have to have the comp- compiler know that that part of the code is truly unreachable um, as opposed to uh, just you know trapping if it would end or ever end up there, even though we all know that it wouldn't. Right, right. So the the other issue here, um, or kind of like the, the main concern uh, with implementing uh, these modified coroutines correctly, um, is this idea of making sure you're in a clean state when the coroutine finishes. There's an example in the pitch here where you have uh, thinking about impl- implementing uh, array.first. So to get the first element out of an array, and uh, which returns an optional. And to sort of summarize this code to make it a little bit more digestible, um, you know, you want to check if, uh, if the array is empty first and if it's not, uh, or sorry, if you want to um, access array.first, which isn't optional, and let's say you want to mutate that value. Um, so you say like my some operation. And let's say that that function is um, a throwing operation, mutating and throwing. Um, so if you have a, an array of integers, uh, let's say, you know, that would increment that that first value. And uh, if there's, you know, some kind of error, it will throw. So the first thing you want to do is check if it's empty. And if it is, you know, you just do nothing. And otherwise, um, you'd want to get that value. Um, so you want to move the storage, initialize a new value, do your mutations, put everything back. So you have this moment where, and I'm kind of glossing over this a little bit because it's kind of hard to explain uh, without looking at this code. Um, But 
you temporarily have some uninitialized or like invalid state in memory when you are doing this. And so you need to make sure that if the the function throws at the call site, that everything is cleaned up and put back into a valid state uh, before the coroutine finishes. So let's say you have that array dot first dot, you know, my function, and that throws, you could end up in this invalid state with invalid memory. Um, so the solution to that um, is to put the block of code that manipulates this storage, this underlying storage, um, where you initialize this new value and mutate it, and that you'd want to put that in a defer block such that, so it will be executed every single time, no matter what happens. Um, so that's common in other scenarios um, in Swift where you'll have a defer, you wanna make sure that you have some sort of cleanup code that will always be uh, executed when the scope of, let's say, a, a function ends. Um, so this is very similar and um, it's kind of kind of a complicated situation that I think um, if you're if you're not totally sure what you're doing, you could get bitten by like modify and yield for sure. Yep, just goes to say how you know you shouldn't jump to using this feature uh, before identifying that you um, have performance issues um, with the standard and simpler get set semantics, but that this is a useful tool if you find yourself um, sort of hitting a, a performance wall that you can't otherwise get over. Right. Hopefully that explanation was clear. It's, it's really a bit confusing. Um, and the other thing to note is that the reason this is an issue is because some a function that throws interrupts this entire control flow. Um, and so that is why uh, you need to make sure any sort of cleanup that you need is happening in a defer within your modify coroutine. Yeah, and there was discussion in the thread here about building this error handling in directly uh, into the feature, like perhaps having some sort of yield catch or doing yield inside of a do catch block, um, etc. But ultimately, um, it's Ben's opinion that doing so would sort of sour or salt um, the simple cases where you don't have any potential for cleanup work. And so um, his suggestion is really to stick with the simpler or rather the lack of built-in error handling so that simple cases are easy and um, hard things are possible, but not you know, making easy things hard to do in the first place or overly verbose. Right. Yeah. And he, yeah, he describes um, the need for mandatory cleanup inside of a defer block um, as a sharp edge, uh, which is definitely true because it's very easy to, to get wrong, it seems. But I think if you're 
diving into modify and yield in the first place, you know, you're hopefully a more advanced user and you're familiar with uh, defer and like when and how to use it. So there is that. In terms of the ABI implications of a change like this, the application binary interface changes now that Swift is ABI stable on on Apple platforms. Um, it, there are none because the feature as pitched is um, exactly what shipped in Swift 5.0 under the underscore prefixed keywords and has been in use since that time. Um, I suppose if there were any uh, requested changes to the pitch as it's written, that those might have ABI implications. I mean, it sort of depends on on what's being requested, um, how large the requested changes would be, if it could be composed from the existing functionality, um, then it could probably be done in an ABI compatible way. Um, mm -hmm. But as it's written now, this change is ABI stable because it's really just formalizing what shipped with Swift 5.0 internally. Right, and it seems like they would want to avoid anything that's not ABI stable, right? So, because um, that, oh, yeah, that's a hard requirement at this point. Right. Nice. And then uh, I guess this would be, this would only be a bit, only be available in um, Swift 5.x versions, Swift 5.2, for example, and later. Uh, yeah, this, you know, it's a new language feature. So yeah, um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be backported, but uh, I guess your point might relate to, well, can you use this in concert with other um, pre like older binaries that were compiled with module stability, right? Like Swift 5.1 libraries. Right. Right. Um, and the answer is yes, right? Because you wouldn't cross those module thresholds. Right, right. Um, you can only add something that has the modify keyword in new code, and you can only use the yield keyword in new code. So you would never have to cross um, that ABI um, boundary. Right, right. You know, that's the nice thing with new concepts or new features like this is that they exist sort of entirely additively. Since we didn't have any sponsors for this episode, we'd like to thank everyone who participated in the discussion for this pitch. Thanks to Ben, John McCall, and everyone else who's been participating in the thread. Um, it's really fun to see this level of involvement for, um, what in reality ends up being some pretty you know, power user features of Swift. For sure. Uh, so you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore unwrapped. You can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP on Twitter. And as always, if you like the show, please do leave a review. It really helps us uh, keep the show going to know that you're listening. Uh, and I hope you write a lot of Swift in the new year and the new decade. Thanks for listening.